Good morning, everyone. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4 today as we continue our time in this book. As we've been studying now for the past several weeks, I have so benefited from the truths that are found in this book. And today we're going to be looking at the entire chapter. I'm going to read out loud. You follow a copy. You follow along in your copy of God's Word. If you do not have your own Bible, as always, if you don't own a physical Bible and you desire one at the end of our service in our welcome area, we would love to put one in your hand as a gift to you so that you would have your very own copy of God's Word. So please know that, especially for those who are visiting who might not own a Bible. So 1 Samuel chapter 4, let's jump right in. We have a lot of work to do. And it says this. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp. The elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the powers of our enemy. For the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout. So that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the, in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp and they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us who can deliver us from the power and these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men. O Philistines, let, let, um, let, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you by men. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man from Benjamin ran to the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat, by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? And the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle I fled from the battle today, and he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, 
And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of, the, of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, Phinehas was great, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you, you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of the covenant had been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband. Um, and she said, The glory of God has departed from Israel, for the ark of the covenant of God has been captured. Let us pray one more time. Father, we pray that now as your word has been read, that we who are here together sitting on it, I'm under its authority, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, spiritual realities that it would awaken us, Lord, to respond rightly to this text. Father, that as this word is explained, those who are among us who are lost enslaved to sin in need of a savior that their eyes would be opened that they would see their great need of Christ turn to him in repentance and be saved and for Christians here Lord who perhaps you who knows the heart who needs to be encouraged today who needs to repent and, 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 and stop entertaining the things of this world or the idols that they've built they would live out their faith and just live for the glory of Christ. So Father, just I pray that you would do with us as you will. That you who are powerful, you Holy Spirit, that could discern the hearts of men in the room this size with these amount of people, with this amount of Christians and perhaps non-Christians. That your work and your word would go forth powerfully. And that you would be glorified for it all. And that we would be amazed. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's an article that came out recently, October 10th, out of USA Today, that the title is, I am a, a Christian miniature, a minister, I'm sorry, who had two abortions. Here's how my faith informed those decisions. A Christian minister who had two abortions, and here's how my faith informed my decisions. This is the title of this article, and there's a lot that I could say about it. I just want to read a few things that she said. Her name is Re Rebecca Todd Peters. She's a professor of religion at Elon University. She says this, recognizing and affirming that parenting is a sacred re responsibility means that we need to recognize the moral wisdom that my mama shared with me. You shouldn't have a baby just because you're pregnant. You should have a baby because you want to be a mother. You want to have a family. She says, ending a pregnancy when one is not emotionally or physically able or ready to parent a child can be a morally responsible decision. She says, ending a pregnancy that will interrupt one's education or career, the tools that enable people to prepare themselves to live stable, abundant lives can be a moral responsible decision. 
She says ending a pregnancy in the midst of an abusive relationship, a failing marriage, a, a joblessness, a health situation, or any number of reasons can be a morally responsible decision for a woman and her partner who want to be able to provide a stable and healthy family situation for their children. And on and on. A Christian minister, a pastor, who is twisting God's word to say what it doesn't say to the point of actually affirming that God would approve of abortion. I mean, reading this article, it's a good reminder for us all. It reminded me of how absolutely depraved man is. It reminds me that man is a rebel against God and does not seek to do what is right, who does not know God and his holiness or his law. Man is a rebel against God who rejects his rule and his reign, but I thought of another way in which man rebels against God, in his own pride, in his own fallenness, because he doesn't know who he is dealing with, the God of the universe. Man has the audacity to think that he could attempt to manipulate or control God, or twist his words like this Christian minister has done with her two abortions, how she's justified it. Oh, as long as man believes that he could somehow successfully capture the attention of God for God to do his or her bidding, for God to affirm his or her's depravity, if they believe that they could harness that, they'll fly it under the banner of religious and even Christianity. Oh, man has always rebelled against God even under the cover of religion, even Christianity. This is nothing new. In the ancient world, oh, the ancient people, they needed rain from heaven, they needed fertility from the soil in order to grow their crops, they needed wives to bear children, they needed prosperity in life, and if they could manipulate the gods and capture their power, they would do so and become very religious people. We will adopt the rituals and the chants, whatever it would take to arouse, provoke the gods so we would erect great temples and put in the temples, sexuality was, was always involved. Uh, prostitutes were put in the temples, why? To bring, a, uh, to bring arousal to the gods so that they would pour upon the land their fertility and bless. And if we could just manipulate the gods and control the gods, then we could receive those things that we desire. But we know that religion that attempts to control or manipulate God is not just the practice of the ancient world. It's a practice that we even find in our world in this present day, quote unquote, even Christianity. For example, the prosperity gospel is a good example of this. But is it, what is the prosperity gospel? The idea that God is at our disposal. That God, because we can name it and claim it, that God is obligated to respond to our words of faith, to our every desire, to our every perceived need, and the things that we want in this gospel, which is a fake gospel, is that we desire wealth 
and health and prosperity. And so therefore, we call upon God to do our bidding. Nothing's changed. Sinful, depraved man is always out to control God, manipulate God, to receive from God those things that he feels, man feels, is what he needs under the sun or what he craves. But sometimes the distortion and the manipulation is not as obvious in our day. But we, we have to understand that faith, faith is supposed to be about bringing us to the saving knowledge of Christ. That's what faith is about. It's about repentance. It's about, it's about forgiveness of sin. It's about holiness, and it's about service to the Lord. And yet, like one commentator said, Dale Ralph Davis, he says that in this world, we find that a lot of Christians have rabbit foot theology. The pursuit of God, motivated by what I could get out of God. Treating God like a lucky charm. When God, his whole purpose, his whole message to us, what he offers us is communion with him, relationship with him, forgiveness of sin, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet so many under the banner of Christianity, and if we don't guard ourselves, we fall into the temptation of trying to treat God in such a manner where we approach God for the things that we want more so for the things that he has given, Christ. So some examples of this is, for example, to there are people out there who care less about Christianity until they think that it'll profit their business, that God's going to bless, the gods are going to bless my business if I just go to church. So let me try this church thing, and let me give some money, because God is going to bless Others start students, for example, man, man, I need to do good in this test, and, and so what do I do? Let me go to church this week, and let me do the right things so that God might have favor with me and just do the miracle because I don't know the subject much. Politicians are, let me entertain those Christians and those churches. Why? Because just maybe if I appease the Christians, God will bring for me political favor, strengthen me. Or the athlete who's, you know, steps into the batter's box and the first thing he says, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's go. Taking text out of context. The concern of so many has been this way all the way in our text. Sin, it's, it's, it's this way in our day. The concern is not to seek God for his grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Oftentimes, it is to seek God, to, to attempt foolishly to control God and manipulate God. Not to be in communion with God, but rather to just use God. To find success in this life instead of repentance. To think in terms of religious magic instead of holiness before a holy God. And the consequences of such depravity, the consequence of such wickedness is that God's wrath and judgment is certain and sure upon those who have rebelled against him, which is all of humanity. Oh, Romans 1.18 tells us, well, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress 
the truth. Twist the truth. And in the passage that we have read, in the text that we have seen, it is very evident of the depravity of man, how they try to manipulate God and control God and use God. And it's very evident also the judgment of God. And we'll see in this text how Israel has this rabbit foot theology and how their rebellion would lead to the departing of the glory of God among them. There's nothing worse than that. And the question becomes, is there any hope for them? And the answer is yes, because God is a God of promises in the midst of a rebellious people. So I want you to write down this main idea. Here's the main thing I want us to take with us this morning. And it is this. Though man is depraved and ruined because of sin, there is hope in the promise that God will save his people. For every single one of us who are, we've inherited the sin of Adam, we have come from Adam, we have inherited this depravity and we're ruined by sin, children of wrath, lost, dead in our sins and trespasses because of who God is and the promises that he has made, God has promised to save a people for himself. And he will ultimately do that in Jesus Christ. And his church is that people. I want us to see that this morning. So our text begins reminding us that although the condition of Israel is that of a rebellious people, as we've seen, as we've read, and even saw last week in the past couple weeks, we do see how the condition of Israel has been very illustrated by Eli and his sons. These wicked sons of Eli. And Eli, who's an unfaithful father to them and unfaithful servant of the Lord. And though these were the men who were interceding for the people, God, who does not give up on his people, has been working out a plan of redemption. And verse 1 tells us that the word of Samuel, it came to all Israel. Well, we know that finally the word of the Lord is no longer scarce. In the previous chapter, we saw that the word of the Lord was hardly heard because of these guys who were there in Shiloh interceding. We're not men of God. But the Lord raised this young boy, as we saw the story of Hannah, and raised this man, Samuel, and by now, the Lord has established him as his prophet, and therefore, he will be the leader who will now bring the word of God to his people. The word of God was no longer scarce in Israel. Why? Because it was coming through the mouth of Samuel. That was great news for Israel, but things will get much worse in Israel before they get any better, as we just read chapter 4. Apparently some time had passed now between verse 1 and verse 2, and now we find Israel lining up for battle. Here we go again, always fighting their enemies, always in the midst of conflict, and they're fighting against the arch enemies, the Philistines, who they have had interactions with before. It wasn't the first time that they fight the Philistines. They have a long history with them. If you remember our time in the book of Judges, it was Samson who fought the Philistines, and it was Samson who was, 
who was captured by the Philistines when he was betrayed, when they cut his hair, and it was Samson also who, in that space, in that temple where he pushed some columns as his hair grew back and he regained his strength, and when he knocked down that temple and pushed those pillars, 3,000 men, 3,000 Philistines with their leadership were, were killed. So there's a history among these two people. And now both armies are encamped. One, Israel's in Ebenezer. The Philistines are at Aphek. And the account of the battle, what happens in this battle, is absolutely depressing. Because verse 2 tells us the outcome. The Philistines, they drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines. 4,000 men died. Devastating. Not only because 4,000 Hebrews died, but because they knew that whenever they lost a battle, it was because the Lord was chastising them. It was because the Lord, his divine favor at the moment was not with them. And they knew this because this was their history and they understood that this came from the Lord because look what the elders say in verse 3. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Philistines defeated us? No, they said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Oh, they knew that God was behind their defeat, that God was behind these 4,000 men that had died. They knew that their success or their failure was a direct sign of God either blessing them or chastising them, punishing them. They knew their history. When Israel entered the promised land and marched towards Jericho, they know how the Lord gave them victory as those walls came down. But they also know what happened when they sinned, when the sin of Achan, when he kept the spoil, how they fell to the army of Ai. Well, this was the constant, repeated ways of Israel experiencing this failure. Experiencing this failure, they, they began to turn their thoughts to God in some way. They understood, God, why have you defeated us? Because they knew their vicious cycle of God's people, when they would rebel, God would punish them, and then God would raise a leader to then rescue them, and they would be obedient for a season in, in their repentance. But soon enough, they start worshiping idols and the gods of other nations, and they sin against God, and they lose their way, and God has to chastise them again, punish them again, and this vicious cycle is repeated in the story of Israel. And in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, they're on the downward spiral of that cycle because primarily because of the sin of Eli and his sons, but who they represented clearly the sin of the people. The text doesn't say it's interesting. We see the heart of the elders of Israel. Nowhere does the text tell us that the elders went to speak with Samuel who had the word of the Lord. 
the prophet whom the Lord had now raised, who had an established ministry. They did not apparently go to Samuel to get his advice, his counsel, a word from the Lord. In fact, what they did is they rather, they devised their own solution out of human reason and wisdom. Verse 3 says, they responded, hey, why has the Lord done this to us? And they said, well, here's the solution. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, verse 3, here from Shiloh, that we, that it may come among us and save us from the powers of our enemies. Well, they look back into their history, and they understood, wow, we have some great battles in our history where the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, always went before us. For those of you who, who don't know about the Ark of the Covenant, it was a wooden box that the Lord instructed to make, who was wrapped in gold, who had these cherubims on top, these wings, that right there was the presence of God in the box were the Ten Commandments, a staff of Aaron, some manna, a bull, some very important artifacts, the history of God's people. And this box was where the presence of God was at. Upon it was the mercy seat where once a year the high priest would go into the holy of holies where this ark would be put there. And there he would shed the blood of a lamb in order to make atonement for the sin of Israel. Well, this is what they had decided, hey, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant because this has been the history of our people. And what we need now to defeat these Philistines is to just bring the Ark. It would lead the way. It would bring us some encouragement for us to be able to now face the Philistines. Now, the problem is God never told them to move the Ark. They decided this on their own. And they figured that if they had the ark, if they had the lucky charm, if they had the rabbit's foot, if they had this box with them, that that alone would be the thing that would bring about their victory. They didn't do this. They weren't concerned about turning their hearts to God. They didn't ask God, God, why did you defeat us? They talked to them among themselves. Well, why did God do this to us? There's no record of them actually going to the Lord and saying, Lord, we repent. What have we done wrong? Expose our sin. Reveal to us the things so that we could repent. This is not what they did. They didn't ask why. They didn't humble themselves before the Lord. They didn't seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. No, what they did, they tried to use God. They tried to use the sacred wooden box, the ark, to be the means by which they could be rescued. And on top of that, so you could see their blindness and the sinfulness and how far from reality they were, that even those who were carrying the ark, who were behind the moving of the ark was who? Hophni and Phinehas. The very ones, the very two wicked sons of Eli who had willfully, intentionally, unrepentantly broken the law of God that was actually in the very ark that they were carrying. A what? Rebellion. But what they wanted was to somehow 
through bringing the ark out into the battle, they wanted to somehow harness the power of God. They wanted God to serve them instead of them serving God. And you would think that they would sort of wake up. They had this, this, you know, this whole plan, hey, hey, to, uh, to, uh, to defeat the, the Philistines, let's, let's, let's go and grab the ark and bring it over here. You would think that when they bring it out from the Holy of Holies and they bring it out among the people, you would think that that alone, the place where blood is poured every year for the sins of God's people upon the wings of these cherubims and where the presence of God was at, you would think that just observing that alone would remind them of God's law, would remind them to consider their own sin and remind them of the sacrifice and the blood that must be shed for the forgiveness of their sin. Yet for them, blinded completely to it. Their sinful and wicked ways continued. So verse five tells us that as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, here's how they responded to the ark among them. It says that Israel gave a mighty shout and all the earth resounded. Just like the time at Jericho, right, where they blasted the trumpets and they all screamed and the walls, they thought that they could just replay this. And we're gonna do it this way. God, show up. We're gonna bring you here so that we can start screaming and you do your thing. This is what their fathers did in the past. And upon the Philistines, great terror started. They felt the ground shake. They heard the scream and probably sent out some reconnaissance. Go and see what these Israelites are doing. And sure enough, they came back with the report. Oh, they have the Ark of the Covenant before them. And this brought great fear to them. For a moment, they felt the terror because they knew the history of the God of Israel, the gods as they knew it because they did not know the God of the universe. Not only did they have their own experience with Israel, they even remembered the history of Israel when they were in Egypt and how their God freed them from Egyptian rule, how perhaps the opening up of the Red Sea, the 40 years in the desert, how God had moved powerfully among them but somehow, some way, we find out that they mustered up the courage. Although they were terrified for a second, they sort of reasoned among themselves and like, hey, hey, wait, wait, gather yourself together. We're a bunch of dudes with swords and shields. Let's, let's, let's fight these Israelites. And Israel was defeated big time. The text tells us that at the end of the battle, every man ran to their home to hide. The text tells us that 30,000 Israelites were slaughtered, not 4,000 like the first battle, not 30,000. And not only that, the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And not only that, as promised by prophetic word from Samuel and the word that had come to Eli, both his sons would die the very same day as promised. It was horrific. Now, now, whatever it was that, that the Philistines, how they mustered up the courage to attack Israel, I'm not sure, other than 
God is chastising his people. He was going to use the Philistines to accomplish this. Somehow they understood that the shouts of Israel was powerless, was not affirmed by the God who created the world and who had called them. And Israel, who had a, a false sense of confidence in that moment, screaming as if God was on their side in this moment, in this way, suffered such a great loss. It was horrific. So the battle ends. People are running for the hills, and, and they fought the Philistines. It was a great slaughter. And then this one guy gets away from Benjamin. He's torn to shreds. He's full of dirt. He runs to Shiloh to tell the news to the city and to tell Eli, the high priest, of all things that had taken place. And the text tells us in verse 13 that Eli is trembling, that Eli is anxious. Why is he anxious? Well, perhaps because when they came to Shiloh, Eli was still the high priest. Eli, the ark was taken from right before him. And he likely, as he did with his sons, he, him as a bad leader, he didn't know how to say no. Or because of his blindness, he could no longer control the situation. But he was aware that the ark of the covenant was taken and he did nothing about it or could do nothing about it. And he was very much aware that the Ark of the Covenant would only move, would only be moved not upon our own request or desires, but only upon the commands of God. And perhaps he knew that the judgment against him and his sons and to Israel that had been promised, that he would have no atonement for their sin, that their punishment would be forever. Perhaps in his anxiety with the Ark of the covenant now being gone perhaps he knows that the day is almost here that judgment is about to come so the young man from Benjamin he's sharing the story and word gets to Eli he summons him and he comes to him he's like son tell me exactly what's going on and he shares with him devastating news he says Eli the battle was lost we lost 30,000 men and your sons have died. And he took all that. He understood all that. He probably mourned on that. But what he mourned the most, what was the one thing that made him most anxious and fearful was the devastation of the news that the ark of God was gone. That God's presence would no longer be with his people that was much more significant than the loss of his sons, who he knew were wicked, who judgment had come. But the Ark of the Covenant, upon hearing that the Ark was captured, this is when he freaked out. He was heavy. He was blind. He was old. He falls back. A horrible way to die, by the way. Falls back, breaks his neck, and dies. And that's the end of Eli. 
And the author just says, Eli served for 40 years as a leader of Israel. Oh, Eli, his days were done. His children, his sons, their day came. The chastising of not just them, but the nation of Israel had come. They were defeated, 34,000 men in total lost their lives, but the most tragic thing was the Ark of the Covenant no longer among them. What Samuel had envisioned, what Samuel had shared with Eli, that there would be no atonement for him and his family, that day had come, and the nation was devastated. And sin has this rippling effect, as we know, that one of his sons, Phinehas, his wife, Eli's stepdaughter, she finds out that her husband had died, her father had died, but more even, like Eli, that the ark of God was no longer among them. The agony and the despair provoked her to go into labor pains. Here she is in her despair, in her grief. She's giving birth to a, a child, and the women who are helping her, they're trying to just bring some counsel to her, to comfort her. And they're telling her, do not be afraid. Your son is born. As if the number one thing in her mind right now is the birth of this child. Oh, the whole entire scenario is so devastating to her and the hopelessness and despair is beyond just the loss of her husband and her father-in-law and even beyond the birth of this son that the only thing that she could do as these women are trying to encourage her, she looks at them blankly, doesn't say a thing. And when she's ready to say something, before she dies, she says, I'll name him Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed. What a low for the nation of Israel. First Samuel begins with the joy of, a, of another mother, Hannah, who had been given a child, Samuel, who would bring hope to the nation, who would bring the word of the Lord as his prophet Hear her words. The naming of this child, Ichabod, would indeed be true. The Ark of the Covenant God the, is gone. The glory of God has been departed. And let it be known that the reason why the Ark of the Covenant was captured is not because God was defeated. It is not because God was not powerful enough to defend himself. It was happening and it happened because God allowed it because this was God's discipline upon his people. This was a dark day for Israel and they could not see the light of what God was doing. God's purpose of removing himself, and we can see this in, in the scriptures, God's purpose of removing himself to cause his glory to depart, the purpose behind it, because God is a God who is true to his promises, 
In the midst of this darkness, in the midst of his absence among his people, God is a God who is doing something in the world to bring redemption to his people. And the reason why this came upon them was so that they would be spurred on into once again seek the glory of God, to once again repent of their sin and trust in the God who saves and provides, that they would trust once again that the only thing that they need is God and God alone, that he's the one that leads their way, that he's his, their provider, and that in his providence they must rest. This has always been the case. Remember the words of Jeremiah 29 as Israel is at Babylon, captive, as slaves, going through very dark days. Through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29, he says this, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And here's what God says, and I will hear you. You will seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore you your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now God brought chastisement, punishment to his people. This isn't a Philistine army that overthrew God controlled God, devastated God. This was the purposes and the intentions of God to cause his people to stir in them a great need of repentance to restore a relationship, a communion with him. And to show that in this moment of despair, in this moment where they would think it is all over, that God is no longer present, we see God's work and that he has already, already provided that prophet, already raised up Samuel, established his ministry so that the word of the Lord would continue to go forth among them, a glimmer of hope. Oh, God is a God of promises in the midst of man's depravity and sinful ways. Though that be true, and though man is devastated by it, unable to save himself, God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, a God who always fulfills his covenant promises, has promised to save his people. And what we find in the midst of this passage that has nothing positive in it, Everything negative, we see the glimpses of verse 1 of chapter 4 that says, the word of Samuel, it came to Israel, God's word was there. And the devastation that God's glory was no longer with them. We could use biblical theology to understand the whole, if we could just pull back from the scriptures a little bit, as this daughter-in-law of Eli, who is in despair, God has abandoned us, we could know that God has never abandoned his people. And God is a God of promises. And God is a God who's always working his redemptive purposes through a child that's born, and so often. Samuel is this baby that's born that has his purposes in the redemptive work of God for his people, one who would come as a deliverer, a prophet, who will be pointing to a greater one, a greater deliverer. 
And here we have Ichabod who is now represented, this baby that is born represents the devastation that God's glory is no longer among them. But that would never remain that way because God is a God of promises. And we look at Ichabod as his baby and we can see the contrast of that, that some point in the future, another baby will be born and his name will be Emmanuel. Emmanuel, not that God has departed, no, but that now Emmanuel means that God is with us. The glory of God would once again appear and be in the person of Christ. I love how John would say it in John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And why did he come if not to fulfill the promises of God that he would save his people although they were depraved in their sin and fallen nature, although they needed to be punished and chastised and brought about so that God throughout all history can prove to his people once and for all that he is a God who is merciful and gracious and who will fix the problem of our hearts when he himself will become a man to be our representative to be our substitute, to live the human life that we were required to live but could not, so that then Jesus would die on a cross, shed his blood for all those who would believe in him by faith, his people, none would be lost. And this is what John would say in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 7, verse 24 Jesus praying as John hears the prayer we don't know how exactly he heard Jesus praying to the father in some intimate setting but thankfully we have it in the scriptures and John writes Jesus' words father I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world Although man is depraved and ruined because of sin, there's a hope in the promises that God will save his people, and he will do so through the person and work of Jesus Christ. How beautiful is that? That we, on this side of the cross, we could live with the realities that we have been, our sin, if we trusted in Jesus, have been atoned for. So therefore, our lives are pleasing before the Lord. We are accepted in Christ, though we face the constant challenges of living in this flesh, where God, who abides in the Christian, because God abided in the ark, abided in the tabernacle, abided in the temple then, and then there was absolute silence, but eventually he abided after 400 years in the person of Jesus Christ. He made tabernacle with us that Jesus, he ascends to heaven after the resurrection, and he promises to send the counselor who now abides in us, and Paul would then say, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Christian. And where the rubber meets the road for Christians is if this is the reality of my life, my eyes have been opened to see the glory of Christ, why would I want to revert back to live in the ways of the flesh, in the ways of my old life? Paul is repeatedly in his letters reminding Christians, you once were, now you have become. 
The call upon us is to live the life in Christ that we've been called to live. To trust in the work, the finished work of God in his son, Jesus Christ. That we would praise him with the right motivation not to manipulate him, not to control him, not to try for him to do our bidding, but that we, it would suffice for us to know the saving work of Jesus, that all that is promised to us is communion and presence of God in our lives. Now that is the one thing, the most important thing, the most desirable thing for every Christian. Therefore, everything that happens in this life is not as important. We could say bring it. We could bring persecution. We could bring death. We could bring difficulty in life. Why? Because to have Christ is to have everything. But if you don't have Christ, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, then what you'll have is just judgment from God. His justice will be laid upon you. You will have no atoning sacrifice. You have nothing to cover you from the wrath to come. And you will spend an eternity in a place called hell. And God, through this text, is telling both Christians and non-Christians, you are ruined, but God is good in providing a savior. God is good in calling people to himself. You could, where you're at, repent of your sin, turn to Jesus. If you would just acknowledge your need of a Savior, the depths of your depravity, only in Christ can you be saved. Though man is depraved and ruined because of sin, there is hope in the promises that God will save his people, and he has provided that through Jesus Christ. Let me end with just asking you three questions. These are my points, just in the form of a question. Three questions for us. Number one, do you rely more on your wisdom than on God's wisdom? Do you rely more on, God, on your wisdom than on God's wisdom? The elders of Israel, obviously, upon losing the first battle, they relied on their wisdom. They were completely rooted in their own thoughts. Let's get the ark, they said. And that decision, it caused the glory of God to depart for them. They didn't seek wisdom from above. And we have a tendency to do the same. We try to resolve our life's problems through our own human wisdom. We seek to resolve problems, some of us, through science, others through culture, others through intellect and education, others through religion. We do, and we pursue all kinds of things to find the solutions to this life when the only place we gotta go is God's word that revealed to us the Son of God. So Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, it says, Trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from all evil. Oh, how Jesus himself says in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added to you. Or how James 1, 5 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. I ask you this morning, do you rely more on your wisdom or the wisdom of God who is completely manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ? 
Second question for us, do you try to manipulate God for your own purposes? Do you try to manipulate God for your own purposes? The leaders of Israel decided to use God instead of serving God. They took the Ark of the Covenant and tried to use it as a, a prop, a good luck charm. They were trying to harness the power of God to gain what they wanted. Do you do that? Do you manipulate God and try to use God to gain what you want? Do you sort of use a phrase like, God, God, I promise you that if you bail me out of this mess, I will serve you all the days of my life. Have you ever said that before? Do you come to church to entertain the things of God just because of the what if, if this works? You're always waiting for it to work. Oh, because I gave my tithe, because I came to church, surely the Lord is going to give me what I want. God promises salvation and faith and eternity. That's what he promises. Is that what you want? Because what happens to many people, they get disillusioned when the only thing that God offers is eternity and right standing with God. That's not what I need. What is the motivation of your worship? If your motivation for worship is not for who God is himself and what he's done for us in his son, Jesus Christ, if that's not your motivation for worship, then you might be a, re a religious person, but you don't have a relationship with God. Your faithless shouts are powerless. Your external appearances like Israel that had all this pseudo-confidence, they lied to themselves in thinking that they had the power of God to live the moment. And yet if your motivation is to take from God things other than salvation and grace, Christ himself, then you can scream all you want, chant all you want, dance all you want, be externally as religious as you want to be. It is powerless and it avails you nothing. And lastly, do you expect God's blessing without repentance and obedience. You need God in your life, you realize that, but you can't give up the way you live. You can't give up your Miami sinful lifestyle. You can't give up the things that you do. This is what Israel did. This is what Eli's sons did. They were religious externally, but they failed to repent of their sin. And their pride led them there. Their pride, their spiritual blindness led them to think that God was blessing their sinful decisions. No. No. You can't expect blessing, salvation from God, and then at the same time try to negotiate with God the terms of what he's going to forgive and what is his and what is yours. It doesn't work that way. You can't just use God and try to think that you receive blessing because of something that you have done. I, I was reading that the Nazis during World War II, the soldiers, Nazi soldiers, on their belt buckles had a phrase in German that said, God is with us. And they murdered millions of Jews. Or how many during the Civil War in the South in the Bible Belt, crying out to God to deliver them, to help them, 
in this season against the north and how the battle and the bloodshed and churches and Christians were willing to give up much except their slaves. It doesn't work that way. Let it be a great warning to us. We who have trusted in Christ have trusted in him because we count all things as rubbish. And we hold to nothing because all we need is Christ. And this flesh sometimes causes us to forget that. And that's when we live a life of repentance to remember that. So that we are not strapping on works and worldly things that would confuse in us and to the world the power of the gospel in us. And that for those who are not believers, who have not believed in Jesus Christ, oh, they assume that their spiritual blindness, just know you're spiritually blind to the truth. And what you need and what we desire is that God would awaken you so that you would see your sin, so that you would repent of your sin, turn to Jesus and be saved. And join the song of the redeemed where we know that we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, prone to do things our way, but there's a God who's overcome our way when he sent Jesus to die for rebels like us. We Christians should be the humblest of peoples, assuming that the flesh is weak, that we would have blind spots, that we need help in every area of our life, we have brothers and sisters that the Lord has provided his word and his spirit so that, that my relationships would make much of Jesus, so that my marriage would make much of Jesus, so that my parenting would not be like Eli towards his sons, but my parenting would make much of Jesus, so my children would come to know Jesus, so that all that I do, I would do to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Though man is depraved and ruined because of sin, there is hope and the promise that God will save his people because he has sent a beautiful savior, Jesus Christ, whom we exalt here today.